to to follow up on that with a similar question is um, one other thing we've been talking about uh, on like WhatsApp WhatsApp messages and stuff like that is um, WhatsApp WhatsApp right um, is maybe the threshold of the muscles to like what is going to grow it optimally as far as the the movement patterns and and the the specific technique is concerned is just lower than we think um because we've been joe or we've been saying a lot that like if we look at most bodybuilders like the most stereotypical bodybuilding back workout is uh rows for thickness wide grip pull downs for width and and ronnie coleman i think if pretty sure he did that mainly and then you know deadlifts depending on whether you want to call that a back exercise um and i mean he had all the the iliac lat development you'd ever want and so so i'm wondering like is it the case that like even those will hit those regions which i mean so if i'm looking at a, a pull around or 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 chest supported pull down that you're doing yeah, I mean that it makes sense that that's the ideal movement pattern of wide grip pull down and even a row. I mean, it barely has anything in common with those. Um, but maybe those work as well. It's just like it takes. It's just a less efficient way to like uh, that. That's what Doug Brignoli is talking about all the time, right? Like, you can use a, a, a smooth ride or a very bumpy ride. <laughs> but but is that the case? That like, yeah, it's going to happen still. It's just maybe it will take longer. Uh, it will be less efficient. So what do you think? Well, the first thing I like to say with that argument is this is not assume that we know more than we do, right? Because, I mean, most people assume the way Ronnie trained is based off of the pictures that he took for magazines, um, which often <laughs> yeah. is not actually a reflection of the exercises that somebody does the most. It's the ones that happen to be there. So maybe you bought one of his programs or you watch his videos. But, I mean, Ronnie did pull downs and he did pull ups. And if you're holding 800 pounds on a barbell, I don't think it, I don't think you can say that there isn't anything at the shoulder girdle that isn't working at that point in time. Right. I mean, just, so I would say, you know, when you're looking at that, that's why I said, I think, yeah, you, you could say that like, could he have gotten there, you know, better, easier, faster, you know, possibly. Right. But also there's so many variables. I mean, it could have been that like for him, he's just such a, such a good responder to training that things that will make a difference for somebody that, you know, has a hard time training don't matter to Ronnie because they're just, they're just such small variables compared to the, to, to the other things that, you know, that he's doing. Right. Cause I mean, you look, this is what I like to do is, is, you know, have people look at some of these guys when they're really, really young, you know, like looking at a 20 year old, um, like flex or an 18 year old Jay Cutler, 15 year old right. Arnold. Yeah. It's, it's like, I mean, so some of these guys, right. in their late teens have better physiques than other guys will have training their entire life. Right. And are we going to say that like, well, you know, for those guys, it's because of the exercises that they were repping out, you know, like with the, you know, whatever, with the, the, the concrete sand weights or whatever that they, they had at home when they were in their teens. Right. I mean, no, I mean, so Optim like optimizing exercise is definitely a variable, right? But it exists in terms of magnitude with all of the other things, right? And genetics and anabolics and all of that stuff are there. And if you just have, like, if your genetic variable is just turned up to level 12, right? Is, is bringing your exercise technique, you know, up a little bit 
going to be noticeable for that person? No, because they're the person that's like, look, you know, I open the door to go outside. I open the door in my car, you know, whatever. And I grow lats because I'm just that type of that type of responder. That's uh, that's a joke that our, our coach Adam says is like there are those guys where, you know, they just that's what they do. They just they just grow things. Right. Like and like Flex Wheeler, uh, amazing guy. Look at his look at his hands, his forearms are like the guy's got muscles that he, he does not train. Right. Like how many of those guys have just massive anterior tips you ever seen them do anterior tips right they got like thumb muscles and things like they're, they don't have a carpentry hobby you know that they're doing <laughs> at home it's like like so i mean they're growing stuff that's what just is, getting what is the argument of why because like this so this is a very frequent response that we we see right and mm-hmm. people was like well there's all of us and then there's the genetic elites and as if like you know, ignoring almost the reality that there's a bell curve, of course. Right. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's not a separate variable. Like there's like, of course, if we're saying what results in your final physique, yeah. Genetics, steroids, consistency, exercise, selection, nutrition, all of that. But to me, genetics is this overarching thing. And you could make an argument that somebody with better genetics should be able to pick up these differences more. Because if I have the potential to gain 30 pounds of muscle as an adult, but the freakiest of freak has the potential to gain 70 pounds of muscle, then if they switch this exercise technique, you know, they, they turn that on, then they might notice like a a 1% difference is going to be, you know, two point, whatever the math was three, three percent or times more, you know what I mean? Um, so I think what I would say is, is that say that say their, their limit is that they have a potential of 70 pounds because mm-hmm. I think, I think better training can get them to 70 pounds faster, but I don't think it can make their potential 80 pounds. Does that make sense? I totally agree with that. Right? But I'm, okay. but I'm saying if we're saying like, well, pull-ups and pull-downs and all these things applied and, and worked for Ronnie, I don't think the argument of, well, he's such a, he's just has this great response to training would apply any differently with exercise selection than it could to us. You could make the same argument that we could do all those things and get there. It's just on a smaller scale, but I, I would argue that you'd still get there just like they would get there. Yeah. yeah. Well, look at it. Let's look at it this way. So say you take an exercise that like, you know, it's going to have some, something is always the limiter in exercise. So let, let's assume the row, which by the way, if you look at Ronnie doing the narrow row, it is a pull around for Ronnie, by the way. By the time he's holding most of those <laughs> handles, it is a pull yeah. just FYI, right? Score one for the pull around. But so you take one of those exercises and it's like, okay, this muscle, if we, if we, or this exercise, if we look at it, we can say like, well, this tissue is probably getting the majority of that stimulus and then things adjacent to it are getting some and getting some, and, you know, and then there's things that are getting less and less and less. So if one of the things that happens with genetics is the threshold for how you respond to it or what is a stimulus for you for, for hypertrophying is set so low. That means that that person, while they're targeting one exercise, is getting benefits in these other adjacent things that maybe they aren't training directly or putting as much volume or, or whatever into, right? And if we look at that to, and we say, well, if lower genetics just means that everything moves down, well, what that means is that if a person with poor genetics is doing it, is they might not have like any hope of hitting a significant threshold in more like tissue as it gets more and more adjacent meaning that they're going to likely have to be a little bit more diverse in their training to grow some of that, you know, 
other to, to make basically to make everything in their body reach their potential, right? Because they're just not going to be hitting that threshold well enough across everything. You so like say if you just did the barbell lifts, if you have great genetics and all you do is SBD, like we've seen it, we've seen it in strongman and powerlifting and uh, and whatnot. That like occasionally you get one of these guys and it's like, well, all right, you know he's not doing a lateral raise for all the different divisions of their delts or whatever, but they just they look they look like a bodybuilder. And they, but they do very, or they have a very limited amount of motions that they train, right? Um, but then you'll see a not so gifted person taking that same approach, and they'll have a very biased development to their physique. Well, they have a lot of strong points and very weak points. You guys, have you guys noticed that at all? Like you can see both of those two extremes, and that's kind of what of what I'm getting at is is that if if it is a thing where you think of it as like, so if we look at like a bell curve, thinking that the thing that would be the top of the bell curve would be the muscle that would be getting the most out of a given exercise. And then adjacently things are going down. The genetic person, that whole bell's raised. So basically an exercise that's not great for something is enough for them. But for a regular person, an exercise that's not great for that may not be enough to move it. So they're just simply going to have to do a few more things if they want to bring all of the, if they want to bring their entire physique up to its potential. I mean, it makes sense if I think about it, because, uh, or, I mean, we could make the argument that, okay, so Ronnie Coleman, he's the freaks, freakiest of freakiest freak out there. Uh, Brian, for example, he's not Ronnie Coleman, but he has pretty decent genetics. He still has all those like iliac flat um, fibers fully developed, at least like to me, you're just looking at it. I could be wrong. Um, and you know, for most of his training career, from what he told me, he didn't train like this, like he did CrossFit and like max OT and whatever, uh, with mm -hmm. different lifts. And I did a bunch of other stuff as well. I don't have that, um, really impressive, uh, mm -hmm. like lower lat development. So yeah, it's, it all moves on a spectrum. Uh, so, and, and the same, like, you know, I never did a, a push, what's the name press around That's in my right. life. Um, I have a pretty decent chest and some other guys probably doing all of the press rounds and still has a worse chest than mine. So, I mean, God yeah, gives, God takes away. I actually have a question kind of related to the press round thing too. And it's a common one that I actually get in my DM too, whenever I'm posting videos of me doing press rounds and it's some variation of like, why does it matter if we get the pet completely short? Like you know, on one spectrum, you have like the Ronnie's and people like that, that just bench pressed and did dumbbell flies and like never really even hugged the rib cage type thing. Mm -hmm. But then even on another spectrum, you have something like, you know, a close grip cable press or a dumbbell press where you do get a little bit of adduction coming across and it doesn't get it completely short. So what is it about like the last two inches or whatever that you're getting from the press around that, that make it so special and advantageous? Well, so it depends on the goal and the context, but um, I know you've been really riding that lengthened uh, bias train, like hard, hard pendulum swing. Um, and uh, I'm not as far in that direction as you. Like, I do think for sure, like, you know, this is, and we've been doing this for over a decade of like using more lengthened bias exercises for hypertrophy. Um, but, you know, I don't think that like that, I don't think we can look at through the lenses is that like, well, short position exercises are now, not good for hypertrophy 
because you like the amount of fatigue that you accumulate from them is way less than the amount of soreness that you get and whatnot. Right. So we don't have research to say like, Hey, you could have the option of doing this exercise for four sets and being like, like blistering sore for the next three days or whatever, and get this result. Or you could do this other thing for six or seven sets and you could potentially maybe get the same amount of hypertrophy and less discomfort. Right. So just understand that like, you know, we're not accounting for everything. And we've also, you know, we've looked at like, well, what's it look like to actually take a short position exercise to true fatigue versus just fatigue in the fully short position. And none of the research that we have is taking that muscle, like, cause is taking it into partials or whatever. Right. So, so just laying that on there. But when we look at what the most like training at the most short of the position is, right. The main benefit from a fatigue standpoint and from doing it from a nutrient partitioning perspective is actually eliminating the lengthened position more though so than it is having mm-hmm. to shorten. But you got to train somewhere, right? So you can't be like, well, I'm not going to do the lengthened range. So I'm just going to like do little presses, like little quarter reps mm-hmm. in the middle. You got you got to go somewhere to to get the mechanical tension work. But from an orthopedic side, right, training at the two extreme range of motions tends to be extremely good for maintaining orthopedic health, range of motion, mobility. Because remember, when you are stretching one muscle. The thing that is stabilizing that is the other muscle in its extreme short position, right? So your your press around exercise is the shoulder stability exercise for your pull around. That makes sense, yeah. Right, and, and vice versa. So I, you know, I think it, I think you're doing a disservice to somebody by not keeping like short positions in their even in their hypertrophy programs, but just at a lower volume if you're looking at maintaining their mobility and their joint health and injury prevention over time. Right. And, but, you know, I mean, if all, if you get them in through periodization, that's fine. But I don't think that if you're just like, well, research says lengthened exercises are more efficient for hypertrophy. If we do the variables on a one-to-one ratio that you just only do lengthened exercises. Right. Um, because that is the, that is the squat bench dead type crowd. Right. Like, you yeah. know, and like, so, but, like we don't do any corrective exercise. We don't do like any mobility, right? Like, you know, like I will get people that like as, as an old person now, can we say that Brian, are we old now? Forties yeah, um, old man. Yeah. We're not there yet. Yeah. Just <laughs> mm-hmm. by, by just simply including like these extreme ranges in training. I don't do any, I don't do any stretching I don't do any mobility work, whatever, never have to, we've had no injuries. And we get people in that like, that's their profession is they do, like that's what they are. They're the stretchy, you know, foam rolly, smash with everything, activate everything. And I'll have more joint mobility than them relative, right? You know, like I'm not a contortionist or anything, but the, the amount of benefit that you get outside of hypertrophy using these positions, I think warrants keeping them in. Cause it's not that they don't add anything to like how much stimulus you're getting, right? It's just that maybe it's different. And what we don't know, a lot of is whether or not there's synergy in the two things, right? Cause it's like, well, are we getting anything different from that, you know, short position that we don't get in the length of position, right? Cause what maybe are we getting more at the length of position, like maybe more calcium mediated stuff, maybe some th- more of the things, you know, with the sensors and the Titan protein and whatnot, like that's probably what's giving that more of that mechanical tension stimulus there. But on the other end, is there anything that we get there that we don't, right? Or is it simply just like, hey, you know, we can play with these things, um, you know, as you, I mean, you guys all coach in some capacity, right? You know, 
one of the things that you know we'll do is, is like hey when you get somebody new start that like if, if they're a person that like you know they're going to be beat up and like say maybe they're you know they got a job they got to go to that they can't afford to like be super sore and destroyed you might be like hey i'm going to choose short and based exercises because likely for you you're still going to get stronger there's going to be plenty good for hypertrophy they're going to be plenty good for everything that we're doing for a body count perspective right now and i know i can get away with these exercises right now and get you acclimated to training without being like miserable and beat up and maybe even tolerate a little bit more volume that might go towards your strengthening and body composition goals and then we can start introducing more lengthened stuff later when it's not going to like completely cripple you because you're you're coming in with zero training right like that's it's an important consideration for anybody that trains anybody in like law enforcement and stuff like that. Right. Cause you, you can't afford to, you can't afford to have crippling doms if mm-hmm. you know, your physical prowess is, you know, part of what's going to keep you alive on the day. Yeah. Right. I, I, uh, I definitely have my own justifications for why I include short overload movements. And I don't, I don't just train length and like, yes, I am hard on that, on that bandwagon, but, but I do have short overload movements in my program too, but I really like, uh, what you said about it being the, the end range of one being, being the shortened of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something I learned, you know, with you at the practical and it hasn't recently popped into my brain until you said that. So I think more about like kind of the metabolic accumulation, the, the fatigue cost compared to lengthened exercises, uh, the ability to accrue volume kind of where you went with that as well. And, um, potentially regional hypertrophy too. Like I know there was at least a leg extension study that, that showed a different hypertrophy at the short position than it did at the, at the length of position. So that's one of the justifications that I use as well. But um, I was just curious if you thought there was, you know, specifically with the push around versus, you know, a dual cable press, whether there was something like even extra about those last couple inches, because even in a cable press, you are still hitting that short because you're not getting it completely short, but it's short overloaded. It's, 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 it's an ambiguous piece uh, place to be. My guess is there's a regional hypertrophy component, but we, but I'm hesitant to make that claim because like everybody likes to come at me for anything that I say. Um, but the, the tricep, uh, the tricep, um, test that we just did on the different positions, we did multiple, multiple positions on the long head. And there was regional regional specific activity in the long head of the tricep, depending on whether you were in the short or the length of position. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. So the dis, the superior and inferior portions of that muscle were recruited differently, whether it was a short or a lengthened right. position. So I, I think that's going to be a component, but then again, you know, how much, how much is, how much is that going to matter? Right. You know, and the answer is always like, well, over how much time and with how much effort and how much volume. Right. So unfortunately all four of us probably care way more or way too much about this stuff. So we think it matters. <laughs> awesome. The, uh, the muscle fiber is like a rope and you yes. can't, uh, <laughs> can't have that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I wanted to, wanted to ask your opinion on something. Um, or like, should we like stop like in this moment? And this was like a funny wrap up or, um, I'm good on time like, still. If, if you guys are, I'm, I'm good until four 30, okay. well, four 30 EST. Awesome. So, um, one thing I, I wanted to ask your opinion on is, um, cheat reps. And do you think that they are completely stupid or do you think they have a place? Uh, cause like, this is what I just said to the guys before the call that, um, that's why I was late because I was sending these voice notes. Just kidding. Um, that 
like I know I noticed that people moving big weights with this atrocious form uh, is maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but I tend to see that with actually pretty impressive physiques. Um, and I mean, this, this could be completely random, even if that's true, but I could see two benefits. One is that sometimes that might be the way to like provide that slight, like overload quote unquote, that you can't buy going heavier. Cause maybe the weight increment is just too big, like on a pull down, for example, or maybe the, the heavy eccentrics, if you like, you, you use some atrocious form to get the weight down, and then you like control the it the way up. Um, so, what do you think? It's going to be exercise dependent because sometimes you know when you you can responsibly add you know more momentum and things like that, and it can actually make the profile a little bit better. And then in other scenarios, it might make the resistance profile actually worse, and you end up just doing all of the work with with something else, right? And the other thing is to remember that the only people that sling big weights are big people. So you're always going to see that correlation, right? Like, oh, you know, I always see big guys, you know, throwing this around like that because only big guys can throw around that kind of weight, right? Because, But you do see That's people true. flinging around little weights and you know what? They're little people. They're not, you know, uh, they're, they're not that impressive. So I'm not noticing should, those somehow. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, they tend not to make it high on the Instagram. They're all using strict um, form. Yeah, and the, yeah, I'm. Su- I mean, they're, yeah, they're all at the, they're all at the at the, at the 24 hour or you know, big box gym fitness place. Um, but what you should look at is okay. Are you able to basically make that muscle? Yes, are you? Yes, you are. Are you are you able to make that muscle do more of the work? Um, and what I would say is like from um from an injury perspective. Doing dynamic eccentrics is probably the most like risky thing that you can do in the weight room, right? It's, you know, almost mm-hmm. very, very few, like a significantly smaller amount of injuries occur on the concentric period, right? And most injuries in the weight room and in sport happen in dynamic eccentric, right? So that means mm-hmm. like, say you were going to do like a cheater row or something like that. If you are getting a little bit of body momentum to, you know, help you get it back, I would say, yeah, that's probably, that's probably, you know, one strategy that you could use to eke out a little bit more intensity, a few more reps at the end, et cetera, but letting it, that letting that heavy weight then rip you back forward faster is likely where you would, you would have the problem. So for instance, I have never had an athlete tear a lat. I've never had an athlete of mine personally tear anything to be honest, uh, in the gym, but I have had multiple bodybuilders super strong dudes tear their lats uh like doing water skiing that quick eccentric right so yeah so i've had no no injuries in the gym but i've had three athletes tear their lats getting their fat butt pulled out of the water right and just having that that sudden sudden eccentric right maybe it's Mm -hmm. because their lats were so big that there was too much water resistance you know (laughs) (laughs) or the wind just caught into it (laughs) right yeah uh uh-huh um but so that you should consider it's like all right if if i'm if i'm doing this right is am i still making that target muscle a big contributor to whatever that extra movement is being and how how safe is that right and i'm not saying that to be like a fear monger i'm just saying there's no point in taking extra risks if you could use something different like you know a slower tempo or a rest pause or range of motion drop set or like any sort of other thing to add intensity and effort in right because it's like 
there's always options, right? There's always options, right? Brian knows this. There's like, like, you know, 62 different ways to start biasing the length and position more now, right? And it's like, you know, you the, the one might make sense for one exercise, but it might not make sense for another exercise. Kind of on the topic of length, and I have a, a question that's, that's kind of selfish because I really just I'm curious on your opinion. Um, so I'm just going to be quick with it. But um, when you see people doing these short overload movements and approaching failure, there's kind of two different ways that people approach failure. You have those that really grind through the short position and you see like the rep speeds slow down and there's like a lot of effort and you can really you can get a lot of reps in those like really highly short overloaded movements by just continuing to grind and push. And then you see another camp of people kind of just pulling as hard as they can or pushing as hard as they can. And wherever that stopping point is that like soft stop, they just kind of like stop and, and let go. And then they, you know, they let the range of motion like gradually fall off and there's never really any like grinding or trying to push through um, the short position. And then you see the same thing when people go into partials. So you see those people that'll just stop wherever the partial stops you and then kind of release and go again. And then you see the opposite where people will hit whatever the sticking point is in that partial and then try to grind through that. So do you have any perspective or thoughts on that? Cause I've been thinking a lot about that recently. So grinding directly correlates to compensation, right? So the more grindy a rep, right? The more you're getting other things, the adjacent tissues, you know, to help with that, right? So like, I mean, take something like a hack squat, right? Which is a relatively fixed pattern, right? But you grind through that top because you're getting close to stacking. And so what you'll actually do is you'll subtly fluctuate between knee motion and hip motion to try and like slowly inch into that stacked position, right? Which is why like people start to get like the shake and stuff like that in there, right? Now, if you need... Like if you need to do that as a skill, you need to exhibit that strength. And I'd say like, well, then you may have, then you may have to train that. But I would say at that point in time, that's probably where you're getting the worst SFR, if you will. Right. Because neurologically, that is now an extremely complex movement. So you're going to get way more peripheral fatigue that carries into the rest of the workout and your next set and over for very little added stimulus because of more and more of the rep is now being done with other musculature, right? So the more you wanted to be targeted, the less grindy reps you're going to do. Okay. Also orthopedically, right? Grindy reps are more stressful on all of those tissues, right? Um, so you could take that into consideration too, right? Of whether or not it might just be better off doing a good set with a good clear endpoint than trying to add, you know, a few of those grindy reps. Cause th- I mean, this is where like, you're not coming to our progressive overload course, man. You should be here. As we're, we'll talk about like what failure is when the resistance profile is different and the range of motion is different and stuff like that, because it's a different degree of fatigue and a different type of fatigue there than say if you just like continued partials, but you just kept only going to the range yeah. before you started kind of like that really shaky grind compensatory contraction, right? So I tend, especially from a hypertrophy perspective right? Which is always trying to maximize the stimulus and minimize any degradation would be like, Hey, let's get as much of the targeted stimulus out of this as possible and use strategies like pauses and partials and stuff over grindy reps. Mm, that's really interesting. Cause I've always like, 
I've always looked at the grindy reps as like, this is me actually getting to failure. Like, you know, you want to see the, the rep speed slow down as you approach failure. Like Jeff Nippard made that whole video on it uh, relatively mm-hmm. recently where, where he demonstrated that. And so that, but that I do feel all of that, like all those things you're saying, like compensations and mm-hmm. it being more neurologically fatiguing and all this stuff. Um, I certainly feel all of that. So um, that's uh, very helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a switch, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gradient that's going to occur like over a couple reps. Most and like, if you're training really low reps, then yeah, you got like a clean rep and then, and then, you know, whatever. But like, if you're training, you know, mostly for hypertrophy ranges or a little bit above, then you're likely going to have like a small window where you can kind of choose where the appropriate cutoff is in some of those exercises that afford that grinding opportunity. Right. And if you want to, if you want to make that decision process easier, just train at a lower rep range. Right? Well, that's what I then do. That, so then that window gets closer because yeah. you should still see your rep range drop off, but that's another thing that's very different because the amount of the, the amount that the rep speed changes across different exercises is huge. And that's also affected by resistance profiles and stuff, et cetera. Right. You know, like I remember, you know, Lyle going off and on, you know, and, you know, a, fighting with Mike, like, well, everybody's last rep should be like seven and a half seconds or whatever. I'm like, do you know what it would take for me to have to do a seven? There's, there's like pretty much in the majority of the exercises and loads I train with, like there are no seven second reps, like a seven second rep would be me holding a quarter rep for like five and a half seconds. Like there would be a, it would, it would be a five and a half second isometric on top of a quarter of a rep. That's the only way like that any of these motions would get seven seconds with the technique and the exercise selection that we use. Right now, the more, general and exercises meaning that it's working across muscles and more joints that are going to be involved well you have more compensation so you can add more slower reps on top of that right so if you guys want to test this for yourself just look at how your rep speed changes in a single joint exercise versus a two joint exercise right and likely what you're going to have is that single joint exercise like your last full rep that you're going to get is not going to be that much speed difference compared to if you're doing a compound exercise where you can kind of squeeze two joints like that the shaky dumbbell press that everybody can kind of like finish with that lasts you know like like 10 seconds you know you never have a 10 second curl that you finish all the way up unless you do some like some body English, you know, like shoulder flexion, leaning back type of type of thing. What happens yeah, is I was the gonna rep say, gets I might have to record some stuff for you because again, it does involve a compensation, but I would argue that with some of the compounds too. Like I I think the workout I'm gonna do in like an hour is uh I do a seated alternated dumbbell curl and my left arm is weaker. So that last rep. I mean, it's not 10 seconds, but I'll, I'll record it today. I would be thinking it's probably about seven seconds and the same yeah. thing with the overhead. Um, again, I, I don't know how much I compensate on that. I'll be interested to see the form, but it's, it's a slow rep for sure. What rep range are you working in? Uh, about, well, the dumbbell curl is a, a rest pause, but that last, uh, that last one is about eight reps. So it, it would be like 15 yeah. you know, so eight, whatever. So lower rep ranges. the higher rep range, the slower you can get the last rep. For yeah, sure, for sure. Oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So I think, I mean, Dave's, Dave's screwing me up because he trains higher reps than, than what we use for hypertrophy. Um, yeah. I'm always yeah. five to 10. So I, I know what yeah. you mean. Like yeah. I, I reach that stopping point where I make a rep and then it's like, oh, I just, I, there's not going to be another rep unless yeah. it's, it's super grind. Like the one I always keep thinking of is the cable row. Cause I, I really do feel like with that one, I can just grind, like I have a slow rep and then I can do six more, you know? Mm-hmm. And And that one specifically, I've been thinking like, if I just 
reach fully shortened for the rear delts and then kind of release and just go to wherever that stopping point is instead of trying to like inch my way to, to full range of motion. That's probably a more effective approach. Yeah. Look at it because one of the things that you can get with that too, is, is a lot of people do it and the, they'll end up like where the rep normally would have been 10% less range is that they compensate that by just letting the ribs go forward. Yeah. Right. I do that. And my elbow yeah, drops right. a little, my elbow drops yeah, a little right. bit. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. So with all this stuff, right. It's, it's, you know, you're, 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 you're making judgment calls on technique loss and stuff like that with, you know, with that. But I mean, put it this way, if you're training to the point where you have to make those decisions, that means that you're, you're doing effective sets. Right. So whether or not you're yeah. off, you, you should move one rep in one direction or the other. I mean, that's probably something that, you know, a, a couple, a couple sessions and you'll kind of have that dialed in where you need to be. Right. If you're just conscious for your fatigue and your performance. I love that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Probably got time for one more. Dave's got to be gone. Yeah, you, yeah. um, um, I was just going to say, well, uh, mine's like a quick thing, Abel, but then you can go ahead. Just more of like a, a summary. I, cause I, I agree with what you said, you know, with the example of the genetic freak, 70 pounds of muscle potential, something I've said for a while that I hadn't seen too many other people say, but I said, you know, I, I think there's so many ways to get to this end result. And, and I don't love when somebody says like, you know, th this plan is going to, you know, push you past your potential or something like that. Um, I think obviously there are better and worse routines, but I, I think as long as it's a sound routine, it will often get you there. Uh, but your argument, I think, would be that you are going to get somebody there, as you mentioned, like faster and in a less injurious way. Uh, would you say that's like a general summary for N1 is like, okay, we want to get there as efficiently as possible. Um, but you're not saying like, Hey, like, you know, what the people did in the nineties and early two thousands, like, that's not going to get you there. It's just, you found a more efficient way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's more efficient. It's definitely healthier, but the, the big thing is, is, I mean, a lot of people like they think like, Oh, you like, we, you come up with these exercises and then that therefore means people have to do it. And really what we're just trying to do is give people the tools so that when somebody does like have that area that does need that specific attention that now, now you have a tool for that job, right. Versus just saying, well, I'm just going to throw more volume at it, you know, or try and do intensity techniques or whatever. It can be like, Oh, Hey, I've been training whatever, you know, for how many years or whatever. And this is the physique I've developed, but you know, there's a few parts that haven't been coming along now, all of a sudden, like, here's some things that might be solutions for doing that, that don't just require you to just grind and grind and grind forever, or just have to wait, you know, longer and longer for those things to come up. Um, so I would say probably the biggest thing, because I mean, you could argue that like, you know, if you take like a, you know, if you take like, like a Mike Israel version of like an exercise where it's like, what is that? It's a, well, it's a total back exercise, like neck to ass crack all in, you know, all in one exercise. It's called the knack exercise, right? There's like, that's a lot of stimulus in one single motion, right? Um, and so you could argue that like that actually might be the most efficient approach in a, at a certain point in time for somebody versus doing a bunch of like biased exercises because they're going to have to do more exercises in time and whatever. So it might be like, hey, they can get more bang for their buck out of, out of these certain movements. But that won't always be the case. Eventually, what's likely going to happen is some things are going to grow better than others and there will be discrepancy and then there'll be discrepancies in strength and there'll be joint things and things to work around uh, and whatnot. And so by having the ability to say, Hey, 
All right. I've been doing this, but it's not for me. It's not working the lower portion of my lat as well. Now I know what I can do to my training to get more of that in either by adjusting the, you know, the omni exercise that I'm doing that kind of works everything to be a little bit closer to that or to be just like what exercises would I add to that or prioritize that would now do that. So really it's about just being more efficient, but also just being able to be a, a problem solver on your physique journey. Right. Cause everybody's going to have something that they're either going to want to prioritize or they're going to have something that they need to work around at some point. Right. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I think no, I'll I'll leave that because I think that was a good good closing. So I'm just gonna close it even more with this comment. Um, so I I think at the end of the day we can, it's really hard to prove whether it's this or that way, and I think it's completely reasonable to have the at, at least have the stance that okay if someone has good genetics for them it might actually not matter if they're doing like pull arounds and. Um, and iliac chest supported pull downs or just rows and wide grip pull downs. But for someone who has crappy genetics for lead development, for them, actually, that might make, make a tangible benefit. And of course, they will never get to the level of those. Uh, but for me, for example, like if there was some bicep exercise which would get my arms to just 16 inches, that would be kind of a big deal for me. And, but I, I would still not have the arms of like a 17 inch guy. That's kind of what Aaron and I said on our podcast too, is like, for me, like it does matter at this point, like where I am in my journey, like it helps with staying interested. Um, I like the cerebral side that it brings to training and as I've said many times, like I'm 39 years old and I have no aches and pains or things bothering me. And I couldn't say the same five years ago or six years ago when I was doing CrossFit. And even before that, four years old doing that was 34 years old. Right. <laughs> and I couldn't say it at 24 when I was doing max OT either. So, um, at 39 training with slightly more, uh, focus on, on these things, um, have at least allowed me to continue training and, and feel good doing so. Yeah. It is very interesting to be lifting more pain-free now than in my twenties. Like, yeah. So yeah. All right. Um, Fast. we'll wrap it up here guys, but honestly, you guys kind of sucked. You were way too easy on me. I think like, <laughs> I had I a few more. To, I, I had have a to do more. this again. Like we're all I, podcast I, hosts to, and we've yeah. learned to not be jerks. To guess, <laughs> all right. So, so I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. talk some shit about you guys on Instagram to get you riled up for the, for the next <laughs> or something. Right. I have, I have a couple more, so we'll save them for next time. Yeah. Awesome, guys. Thank you very much. Um, And I'll send this recording out later to all of you guys. Thanks, dude. See you guys. Awesome.